I'm Richard Harland. I'm at UC Berkeley. And today I'm going to tell you about the signaling activities that give rise to the neural plate, the forerunner of the spinal cord and brain in vertebrate embryos. In previous talks, I've talked about the introduction to the Xenopus embryo, why it has some advantages for experiments. And I've talked about the cell shape changes that have happened in the, in the embryo that lead to the three-layered ectoderm, mesoderm, endoderm structure, that is, the, case, the, the state at which neural tissue formation happens. Let's initially start by just reviewing the classic experiment, the organizer experiment done by Hilda Mangold and Hans Speymann. And this was the one that really set the stage for what I'm going to talk about. In this experiment, they used marked embryos. They used newts of different colors, a dark-colored pigmented newt and a light-colored newt. And they were asking the question, what happens if we move pieces of the embryo around? Do they differentiate according to how they normally were set up in the embryo, self-differentiating according to their original fate? Or do they adopt the fate of their surroundings? Are they told to become the fate of their surroundings? But there was one particular experiment that was quite spectacular, where not only did the cells self-differentiate, but they recruited cells from the rest of the embryo to make new structures, the phenomenon of embryonic induction. So here what they did was to take this embryo here, the dark embryo as the host, and this paler donor, and what they did was to cut out this dorsal lip region from the pale embryo, flip it around, and graft it in to the ventral side of the host. So not only does this have its normal organizer side, but it has a new piece of dorsal mesoderm stuck in the ventral side. And what they found was that this was enough to make the embryo twin. And that's shown down here in a representation of this particular one done by Andrea Wills, who was a student with me. So you can see that there's a normal primary axis with a head with two eyes. Then down here, there's a secondary axis, which is fused down at the tail, but it's a complete, proper, organized secondary axis. Now, the important thing was, since they were using marked tissues, they could tell what is the contribution of the graft and the host. And so here's a, a representation of a section that was made by Hilda Mangold. Here's the primary axis with the tissues that should be familiar to us by now, the nervous system, the nose cord, and the muscle. And here's the secondary axis, and there's the pale graft. The pale graft invariably contributes just to the midline tissues. Here it's contributing to the nose cord and a little bit of the somites. Sometimes it would contribute to a bit of the spinal cord. But the consistent observation is that it contributes to the midline tissues, whereas the bulk of these tissues are recruited from the host, most of the nervous system, the muscle, and so on. So this graft really must be instructing the surroundings to make the second axis and organize it properly. Here's a modern equivalent of the experiment, also done by Andrea Wills, where she's labeled the donor embryo with a red stain. And you can see in this twin, where the two axes have uh, arranged themselves conveniently next to each other, here is the red labeled graft. And you can see above it the induced neural tissue. So it's not a phenomenon just of the 1920s, but can be done in the current times. Now, I'm really going to emphasize that this induction mechanism was not obvious. And in fact, Warren Lewis, who is not as famous as uh, Speyman and Mangold, tried a similar experiment earlier than they did. But what he concluded, largely because the embryos were not marked, was that the results he was getting was exclusively the result of self-differentiation 
of the grafted tissue. And he couldn't see any induction because the tissues were not marked. And so the bottom line is that uh, he, because of this assumption of self-differentiation, he missed on the phenomenon of induction. And so we remember Speyman and Mangold, and less so Lewis. Okay, let's go back to the whole embryo and remind ourselves what we're looking at. So we know from molecular mapping that the uh, organizer is going to be on the top of this when it loops around again. We're going through gastrulation and neurulation. And when we loop around again, here's the organizer up here. It's going inside the embryo and is opposed to this neural plate and is able to instruct it to make the neural tissue. So again, if we look at this MRI movie, we can see that dorsal mesoderm moving up against this overlying neural plate. And during this process where it's opposed to the neural plate, it's in the right place to be inducing the neural tissue. So that's the normal organizer that's going up there and is thought to be signaling to induce the neural plate. Okay, so we're going to discuss this more, but we first need to understand how we get to that position. I'm not going to go through this in detail, but I'm going to give a brief summary of the initial events that happened to set up the organizer. And it comes down largely to the activity of two different signaling pathways, the nodal SMAD2 pathway and the Wnt beta catenin pathway. We don't need to know about these pathways in detail, but what we do know is the way they're turned on in the embryo. So initially, when the egg is laid, it's got this uh, axis from animal to vegetal, from the pigmented to the yolky side. And subsequently, it was found that there are a number of pre-localized components in that uh, polarized egg. And I'm going to talk about this red mRNA, messenger RNA that's pre-localized, called VEGT, first described by Mary Lou King's group. And there's also slightly less well-characterized activators of the Wnt beta catenin pathway down here. So initially, this is cylindrically symmetrical about the animal-vegetal axis. And an important process here, as is widespread in embryology, is the symmetry breaking. So you have to go from a cylinder to a bilaterally symmetrical egg. And this is achieved during normal development because the sperm is going to enter on one side. It makes this giant uh, aster. So these astral microtubules extend throughout the egg cytoplasm during the first cell cycle. And not only do they serve to pull the maternal pronucleus towards it, but they also serve to bias the way that microtubules polymerize in the outside cortex, the outer 10 micron layer. So as a result of this bias, there's an oriented array of microtubules that go around the embryo here. And they act as tracks for carriage by a kinesins of some of these purple components. And there's a selectivity. The purple components that activate the Wnt beta catenin pathway get smeared out along the entire dorsal side of the embryo. Whereas the red do not do this. They're sort of passively released from the vegetal cortex and spread in a graded way through the egg. So we now have a broken symmetry where we have the red going from vegetal to animal and the Wnt beta catenin concentrated from dorsal to ventral. Now, these two molecules get together and turn on the, the nodal genes. The nodal genes are signaling proteins in the TGF-beta superfamily, and they're turned on in the margin. And in normal development, there's a cooperativity between the purple Wnt signal and now this yellow protein produced from the vegetRNA. So they get together and turn on these nodal genes, and they turn them on at a higher level on the dorsal side than the ventral side. But they do turn them on everywhere. 
And these nodal genes induce mesoderm. So the cells that are initially naive get uh, told in this marginal zone to become the prospective mesoderm. But where this interaction is the strongest, the strongest interaction of beta-catenin and the nodal gene expression, that converges on the promoters of organizer gene and turns them on specially in this dorsal region here. So the marginal zone, the mesoderm, goes all the way across in the equator, but the organizer is special in that it's only turned on at the convergence, the strongest convergence of these signals. Okay, so we've discussed that, and let's just contrast that with what happens if this cortical rotation doesn't occur. And so you can see here, what, there are various tricks to, to cause this to happen. One is to irradiate the vegetal side of the embryo with ultraviolet light, and that prevents the polymerization of microtubules. The alternative is to eliminate beta-catenin production by using a reagent that blocks beta-catenin production. We'll come back to that. Either way, what happens is that we get the release of the VEGT, and we get the graded VEGT protein, which turns on nodal. But in the case of the lack of cortical rotation, then this purple signal stays down here. And so as a result, there is no synergy on this side. There's no overlap between the signals. And so this whole marginal zone behaves like the ventral marginal zone. You get a, a ventralized type of embryo with no organizer. Okay, so that symmetry breaking event back here was important. But we're going to use this trick in the next experiment that proves that we need organizer signal to get the neural plate to be formed. Before we go into that, we're just going to discuss a little bit more about the graded nodal signaling. Because a, a quite widespread view in the field is that this graded nodal signaling is important in setting out the pattern of the marginal zone. It seems quite obvious that if there's going to be a graded signal with more on this side than that side, it should be used for something. So we're going to get a graded response, and the phosphosmad 2 is the intracellular effector, which is known to be distributed like this. There really is graded expression of SMAD2 going from dorsal to ventral, and then this proceeds as a wave across the embryo. So it seems perfectly reasonable to think that in normal development, what ought to be happening is that that signal will tell the embryo to make different kinds of mesoderm. And indeed, that whole idea is supported by this experiment, where we can take from the blastula stage naive ectoderm from this so-called animal cap and put it in culture. By itself, it will self-differentiate into epidermis. But if we add a signal, we can use either nodal or more conveniently active in another member of the TGF-beta superfamily. If one adds increasing doses of that active in signal, the mesoderm-inducing signal, one can get caps that develop in a more ventral way, making mesenchyme. Or as, as one doses in the signal, more and more dorsal tissues like muscle and ultimately a lot of notochord. So those kinds of experiments, the description of the graded expression, as well as this result, where one's reconstructing what may be going on in the embryo, suggests that that graded signal may cause pattern. But I'm going to argue that's not true. So just to sum up, this normal pattern in the marginal zone from notochord through muscle, kidney, and blood could, in principle, be set up by that graded nodal signaling. But this was explicitly tested in a series of experiments by uh, Ron Stewart and John Gerhard, and other sim very similar experiments by Jonathan Slack. And so what I want to review briefly is this experiment that shows that there's not enough information imparted by that early signal to give substantial pattern in the marginal zone. Now, what they did 
they wanted to assess the effectiveness of organizer grafts. And they did this at the late blastula stage. So this is a really early stage before gastrulation goes on and before there's much, there, there certainly is pattern in the marginal zone later on. So they took normal embryos and cut them in half vertically. So they got two hemispheres. And they used that UV irradiation trick. So they had, a gra uh, they were able to graft these, labeled grafts, of course, onto UV irradiated hosts. So they made this recombinant. In this case, the organizer is schematically illustrated in red. So you've got a half organizer here. One of their first questions was, if you only put in a right organizer, do you only get a right embryo? And the answer was, no, you get a bilaterally symmetrical embryo. But also, in many cases, this graft will give you a normal tadpole. So you rescue, develop also, as shown by the lineage tracing experiment, from this ventralized half. But this is really the key one in my, in, in my view. So here they've cut just 30 degrees off the dorsal midline axis. So they've cut the organizer into the right piece, and this piece has no organizer. Now, by the uh, model I was discussing earlier, there should be some graded activin signaling or graded nodal signaling in here that's inducing things like muscle. But we're going to ask that question. We're going to take this side and, again, fuse it to a naive ventralized piece, put them together, and ask what happens. And the result, in most cases, is there's absolutely no dorsal pattern in the embryo. And just to nail this home, I want to... Uh, stress that. So they're taking this ventralized piece and putting on this piece from a normal embryo that lacks just the organizer, but still has that dorsolateral prospective mesoderm that would make muscle if it were left alone. But in the context of this recombinant, you just get this completely ventralized embryo, as opposed to something that would make a little muscle and so on. So this experiment shows, I think, quite well that the pattern that's induced by that graded active in nodal signaling is not enough to have any permanent effect on this tissue and that you actually need the organizer signaling. So that sort of loss of organizer function proves that you need organizer signaling in normal development. Another is a sort of descriptive view where we've looked at gene expression at different phases. And here's a case where we see two, expression of two different genes. This is Nagin expressed in the organizer. We'll come back to that. And as prospective muscle gene, MyOD, that's expressed in a complementary way in the non-organizer tissue. When it's first turned on, it's turned on fairly uniformly around the rest of the marginal zone. Later on, this expression turns off, and this gets enhanced by signaling from the organizer. But when it first turns on, it looks like the marginal zone is organized in a binary way. Now, this very rapidly changes, so we see expression of genes such as this one, LHX1, that's high in the dorsal marginal zone, and then grade it off to the side. So that's a later stage. We also see that with this split, where the blue and the brown genes are expressed in complementary domains in the end of the blastula stage, but very quickly become elaborated so that the brown gene, Wnt8, is restricted away from the organizer and just in the marginal zone. So things are very dynamic, and one really has to look at this early stage to see this binary difference. By this stage, this tissue has already been instructed by the organizer to make muscle. But anyway, this descriptive experiment does support the idea that initially the marginal zone is split in a binary way and is not graded in this induction. So again, arguing that you need a signal from the organizer and it's not enough to have that graded nodal signal. And this just uh, reinforces that. And 
as that slides up, I'll say that we need, need now to figure out what are these other signals. And at the time, there was a lot of experiments that were done using uh, both cell biology, using secreted signals from cells and assaying them in embryos. And many of these signals do have important embryonic functions, fibroblast growth factors, nodals, activins, and so on. But the uh, dorsalizing molecules that are made from the organizer were not uh, understood. So how do we find those? And here I give much credit to Bill Smith, who's now a professor at UC Santa Barbara, who in the early 90s joined me and decided to use an expression cloning approach to try to find these molecules. And again, he used this trick of ventralizing embryos. But at the four-cell stage, he then took synthetic messenger RNAs made from a library. This library was a library of gastrula-specific RNAs in a plasmid that could be transcribed with this synthetic phage uh, polymerase, SP6 polymerase, so that we could get a library of, in the, in the first instance, 100,000 colonies, extract the DNA, and then transcribe that whole library of plasmids to make a complex mixture of synthetic RNA that we hoped mimicked what was in the embryo. And remarkably, that first injection of the synthetic RNA, when it was injected back at the four-cell stage, instead of these embryos looking like this, complete belly pieces, as Schwehmann would have called them, they looked more like this. They had some tail structures, some muscle and spinal cord. So that RNA conferred a morphological rescue. At that point, we knew there was an active ingredient in the library, and it was just a question of sib selection, where we would split the library into smaller and smaller pools, assaying those pools as we go along, and ask, is there a pool in there that confers this ability to dorsalize embryos? And sure enough, we, uh, he did this a couple of times. The first time, he isolated a Wnt signal, which I won't discuss, but is thought to mimic that early Wnt signal in dorsalizing the embryos. But for the purposes of this presentation, the second one he isolated was really exciting because it was completely new. And as a single RNA, as you can see in this picture, with increasing dose of a gene we called noggin RNA, you get this progressive rescue of structures to the normal state. And then when one overdoses the embryo, ultimately you end up with these little noggins, these little heads alone. So the, the single RNA is able to transform from the four-cell stage a ventralized embryo. And if it's put in enough dose, you get just a big head. This has been a very useful assay to isolate a number of other embryological activities, but that's the one I want to concentrate on, noggin. And so this is an in situ hybridization where we're looking at the messenger RNA that's expressed from the noggin gene in early development. And uh, so let's look at this stage. This is a late blastula. Noggin has already turned on, and as you can see, it's turned on in just one side of the embryo, and we know this is the dorsal side. So this gene is expressed... Uh, not only has the right activity in these messenger RNA injections, but it's also expressed in the right place. Here's a vegetal pole view. Remarkably, it's a 60-degree sector, just the same as the uh, sector that Ron Stewart identified in his activity assay. And then in the gastrula stage, it continues to be expressed in the dorsal marginal zone, in this involuting dorsal mesoderm that is lying just underneath the neural plate and in the right place to induce neural plate. Now here's a neural, neural stage where it continues to be expressed in the head mesoderm and node cord, uh, again, in the right place to continue inducing the neural plate. So the activity is promising. The expression is promising. But could we show that it had the right properties? So we initially used uh, a protein that we made in Cho cells that Teresa Lamb had uh, transformed with uh, noggin plasmids. 
And later in a collaboration with Regeneron Pharmaceuticals, they made a human noggin, particularly Aris Economides, and gave us that recombinant human noggin for our experiments. So we were able to ask now, can noggin protein mimic what we know are the embryological effects of grafting this tissue? So again, this is the normal case where noggin is expressed in this red dorsal mesoderm and potentially instructing this overlying ectoderm to become neural plate. But how do we assay that activity? Well, again, we turn to our animal cap assay. And actually, we can turn to that assay in the gastrula stage where the sensitivity of these cells up here has changed, and they're no longer responsive to the active and nodal signal. But we know from uh, recombination experiments that if we graft a, an organizer onto here, neural induction will occur. So now we can replace the graft of organizer by soaking this tissue in noggin protein. And so this is a schematic which we can do in the late blastula or the gastrula, where we take this prospective ectoderm off into culture. Normally it just makes a hollow ball of epidermis when left alone. As I mentioned before, with, with activin or nodal, you get a complex induction of dorsal mesodermal cell types, and those in turn can secondarily induce neural tissue, but the induction is not direct. The important thing for our purposes is that when we treat this just with a recombinant noggin, we get a clean neural induction. There's a little epidermis that's on the outside, an, epi an epithelial layer that's not so responsive, but all of the underlying cells here are trans transformed into neural cells. So we get a clean, clean neural tissue, and that can't be induced by any mesoderm because there's no mesoderm in this explant. We can also do this at a time when the mesoderm can no longer be induced. So if we do this at, at the gastrula stage instead of the late blastula stage, this experiment wouldn't work. Activin would have no effect. And yet noggin can still induce neural tissue. So this then really identified noggin as an authentic neural inducer that it's expressed in the right place and time and has the right activity to be doing the job in the normal embryo. Here are some pictures of the kind of results that we get. These are the work that, these are done by Anne Connect in the lab. And so here we have a molecular assay for neural tissue. This is a, a gene that's expressed throughout the nervous system. And here are some of these explants, uh, explants that lack noggin, and they don't stain for this gene. But the parallel explants that were soaked in noggin protein, as you can see, are robustly induced to make this marker gene, and so we can say they're neural. And that contrasts, again, I'll draw the contrast with the active and mesoderm inducer. Here we're looking down on the top of the embryo at the muscle and nodes cord in the middle. These are mesodermal structures that we've lit up with this collagen probe. If we take explants just like these ones but treat them with active in at the late blastula stage, we get lots of this mesoderm induced. But down here we see that noggin induces no mesoderm. So we do get neural tissue in the absence of mesoderm, and hence a clean neural induction. Just as an interesting side point, I won't be discussing this much today, that we also have to account for production of the entire neural plate from brain to spinal cord. So what kind of tissue does noggin induce? Here we can use regional markers like this cement gland, this very anterior marker, or this forebrain midbrain marker, OTX2, and then this engrail 2 is expressed just at the border of the hindbrain. And the noggin-treated explants will make these very anterior uh, uh, market genes, they'll turn them on, but they don't turn on the more posterior ones. And so noggin exclusively in this explant situation induces anterior brain-like tissue. 
So we have a molecule that works very well, but of course we then had to figure out how it works. And so for this experiment, we for a long time labored under the delusion that we may have invented a new kind of signal transducer. At the time, it wasn't really appreciated that development gets by with a remarkably limited number of pathways. And so here, uh, what eventually turned out with some very useful information from Chip Ferguson's lab, it was suggested that it may be Im impacting the BMP pathway. And Lyle Zimmerman was able to show that because we had all of these reagents in the lab at the, at the time. And the way that Noggin actually works is not by activating any new signal transduction pathway, but rather by interfering with the BMP signaling pathway. Normally, BMP binds to its two receptors, brings them together, and that has the consequence of ventralizing the embryo. In this case, when Noggin is present, it binds tightly to BMP, prevents this interaction, and then by default, instead of being ventralized, the embryo is dorsalized. So I'll stress that, that it's the absence of this BMP signal that is instructive to the embryo and allows the embryonic structures to make dorsal structures rather than BMP-induced ventral structures. And satisfyingly, uh, this crystal structure from Jay Gropper shows that Noggin as a dimer sort of embraces the dimer of BMP, so it's not surprising that it, uh, as Lyle Zimmerman showed, prevents the BMP from binding their receptors. It's a very high affinity reaction, as was shown by this competition experiment. And this was done again by Lyle Zimmerman. He took iodinated BMP4 and was able to bind it to a chimeric human noggin, which has a, a immunoglobulin tail, which makes it easy to precipitate. And so if one simply mixes these together, you get a very active binding and precipitation. But by mixing in different doses of different kinds of other TGF-betas, we could work out the affinity of this interaction. And so notably, if we take BMP4, the red one, and plot how that interferes with the binding of iodinated BMP4, we get this nice curve. And if we plot the half-maximal inhibition, it comes out that the interaction there is that it has a remarkably uh, tight KD of about 20 picomolar. Other BMPs, uh, like BMP7 in blue here, have a lower affinity. And then yet other... TGF-beta family members, like TGF-beta itself, have no measurable affinity. So there's variation in affinity, but very tight affinity for the BMP2 and 4 class. So we come up with this general model that in normal development, you set up the mesoderm with a special dorsal territory, this naive and fairly uniform ventrolateral territory, and the rest of the patterning is mediated during gastrulation by dorsalizing signals like login that come from the dorsal marginal zone, instruct the overlying epidermis to instead become nervous system, and instruct this ventral mesoderm to become things like muscle. So is that it? Uh, really, we've done this by ADBAC, but what about loss of function? And in the interim, a large number of other antagonists were discovered. And a lot of these were discovered by Eddie de Robertis's lab, so Corden and Cerberus, Noggin we discovered, Bill Smith discovered, as well as this nodal 3 molecule. And folistatin had already been known about, but its activity as a, a dorsalizing molecule was worked out by Ali Brivenloo in Doug Melson's lab. So in looking at all these, they're all expressed in the organizer, and they all have some similar anti-BMP activities. You can see that they turn on at different times. This is the early stage, so some are turned on very early. And then some are turned on in slightly different territories. 
And perhaps that's important in how they work in detail, but so far, as far as we can tell, they all work essentially the same way. But there are a lot of them, and they probably have overlapping activity. And so if we try to knock down their activity, do we, can we knock down one and get a result, or do we have to knock down many? To do this experiment, we use morpholino oligonucleotides. These are synthetic, uncharged, and very stable oligonucleotides that can hybridize to the messenger RNA and interfere with translation in this case. So we can specifically use the information from base pairing to specifically knock down these individual RNAs. So Mustafa Koka, when he was in the lab, did this experiment using mixtures of morpholinos against folistatin, cordin, and noggin. And just as a side note, to make this simpler, we did it in the related species to Xenopus lavis, Xenopus tropicalis, which now had a sequenced genome, and so we could identify and design these oligonucleotides easily to target just single genes rather than two genes in the uh, uh, paleotetraploid Xenopus lavis genome. So we can inject these morpholinos and then ask what happens. And we're going to use, for example, in the neural stage, this neural marker, which at the mid-neural stage has this nice uh, ability to light up the neural plate. Because of the worries about specificity of these reagents, which always become toxic if you put enough of them in, we do a specificity assay of rescuing. So by cloning the puffer fish noggin, we could use that different sequence to put back BMP antagonist activity, as we'll find out, and rescue the whole process. So these are the kinds of results. So we're going to do single, double, and triple knockdowns. And the results are pretty simple when comparing the uninjected to the morpholino injected. When we knock down noggin, we see no effect, essentially no effect with folistatin. Some mild effect as reported by de Robertis's group for cordin. But then when we knock down two, folistatin noggin, cordin noggin, cordin folistatin, we see a more extreme effect. There's a smaller neural plate. But when we knock down all three, there's a spectacular result, where now instead of making the neural plate, the neural plate is eliminated. Not only is the neural plate eliminated, but the underlying muscle is almost completely gone. And by this hedgehog control, the notochord and the floor plate are also gone. So this is important to rescue. We can rescue it with this mixture of morpholinos, rescuing it with the pufferfish noggin. And as you see, we get back all of these tissues demonstrating specificity. We can also rescue it by knocking down additional BMPs. So instead of this horrendously high mixture of morpholinos, we're putting in even more morpholinos, but also knocking down BMPs. And again, you can see that rescue. So we're pretty satisfied that this is a specific manipulation. So knocking down the BMP antagonists eliminates the neural plate. You need the antagonist to make the neural plate. As we would expect, as you can see on the right of this picture, the loss of those dorsal structures is accompanied by a gain in ventrolateral structures. So here, for instance, let's, let's look at MSX1. It's expressed just in the flank, but in this manipulated embryo, there's just a narrow stripe left of, of uh, non-expressing tissue. So all these ventral tissues are expanded. We can also ask, when does this dorsal identity fail? When we knock down those antagonists, we clearly lose dorsal structures. But at what step does this happen? And of course, we would predict that it should fail at the time the normal genes are expressed, at the late blastula stage. We can start to look at that and contrast the situation where we interfere with antagonist function in normal development with what happens when we ventralize the embryo from the get-go, either with UV light or by depleting beta-catenin, actually also with a beta-catenin-specific morpholino. 
So in that case, we lose the beta-catenin purple signal, and we get just this ventralized embryo. Okay, so in looking at those, we can see that in, in the, uh, in, in the uh, morpholino knockdown cases, where we've knocked down follistatin, cordon, and noggin, we have normal mesoderm as marked by this brachyuri gene. But in the case where we look for dorsal identity with the goosecoid marker, here's the control, here's the follistatin, cordon, noggin, knockdown, there's still dorsal identity. Whereas if we contrast that with the beta-catenin knockdown, where we've knocked down the early dorsal signal, and of course, we never get a dorsal identity. So there's a contrast here showing that in the absence of the antagonists, we still get a dorsal identity, but then that dorsal identity fails to execute its function. And indeed, we can also look at these embryos to ask what happens to BMP signaling. And in particular, we can use this useful marker, VENT2, because that's normally expressed everywhere except the organizer. We also know it's a direct target of BMP signaling. So again, when we knock down the follistatin, cordon, and noggin, we see that that gap is filled in. So in other words, in the absence of the antagonists, there's a sign pretty early on of excess BMP signaling, which is going to mess up dorsal development and lead to a ventralized embryo. And again, we get the similar effect as we would expect if we eliminate the organizer completely with beta-catenin. The same result is found with this early muscle marker, which muscle development used to be thought to be development mostly on the graded signal from nodal. You can see here clearly that we need that BMP antagonist in order to amplify the expression of this muscle determinant in the early embryo. So overall, we conclude now that this pathway of knockdown of BMP activity by these BMP antagonists, by a cocktail of BMP antagonists, is crucial to get dorsal development and in order to get neural induction to occur. We can show that these molecules by themselves as protein-induced neural tissue. We can show that the combination is essential and they're expressed in the right time and the right place to be ex executing this function. So all in all, it's a comprehensive uh, statement that these are crucial for neural induction and dorsal development. We can add on the additional observation from the end that uh, even in the absence of, of, well, in the absence of these antagonists, the early events go by perfectly normal, normally, and we get dorsal specification in the marginal zone, but in the absence of the antagonists, that organizer can no longer execute its function. So all in all, we can conclude then that BMP antagonists are essential for the Speyman organizer phenomenon. Thank you. <laughs>